0: Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me Marcus Kauke. Today I'm genuinely delighted to have as my guest David Mullins. David is a deviation from our usual fare and he's a sports psychologist and consultant to many of the top MMA fighters, rugby players, footballers on the planet. David, welcome.
1: Thank you Marcus, glad to be here.
0: Excellent. Would you mind giving sixty to ninety seconds on your history and how you got to end up training some of the huge names that you do?
1: Yeah. So I've always been a sports fanatic. So I obviously I used to play when I was able to, and then but I always wanted to stay involved in sports. During my playing career, I always felt like I never was quite sure how to get the best out of myself. So I, I you know, I would. I was a big fan of American sports so I would watch as I was when I was a kid the chicago bulls and, and and different things like that the way those guys were playing and trying to trying to pick up things from what they were doing that I could use myself but I never really knew what I was doing so I, I, I as I got older I got more and more interested in sports psychology and to the point where I did a master's degree in it and wanted to work with athletes so then I've been fortunate enough ever since to get to work with some Some top athletes and some young amateurs, and it's 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 you know tends to be the same stuff for every level. But uh, yeah, working through different things in preparation. Mostly MMA fighters for sure. I've worked with, but some other sports as well. You know, it's not what people think it is. It's a lot. uh, What what, sports did you play? I played soccer, what we call soccer here, and football, Gaelic football. So I played soccer for. Well, for a while I was with Galway United, which is one of the League of Ireland clubs here. Excellent. I played Gaelic football as well, and no hurling then. Hurling, I played, but it's my favourite sport, maybe to watch. But I was, I was more, more soccer and football, I would say.
0: Fair enough. I think hurling you have to be extremely brave or foolhardy. Um, it's like uh, MMA with sticks. It's an incredibly skillful
1: sport. Absolutely. I love watching people who've never watched hurling watch hurling. And it it takes them a while to realize that this is not going to slow down. This is the intensity level. But the skill skill is it's an amazing sport at its best. There's nothing that can beat it, I think. Absolutely. Excellent. So,
0: David, tell me, what is sports psychology? Because I'd love to really know what it is.
1: Yeah, it's a good question because there's so much out there mental skills training and different things that it's very easy to think, you know what sports psychology is, but there's so much spoofers out there, Marcus. There's so many spoofers that it's dangerous in a way for the industry because regular athlete or regular person doesn't know how to differentiate the legit stuff from the, the bullshit basically. So there's, I mean, what I do with athletes is try to help them improve their preparation even down to boring things like their sleep, their diet, being organized, being on time, how they process different different things in, in their lives, whether that's in sports, what other people are saying or what other people are thinking, what might be ahead, how the last game went, all that different stuff that can be going on. Trying to process all that stuff through so that they can be free when it comes to performance time to go in and put in their best possible performance. That, I think, is
0: at the heart of performing at your peak in any discipline. It's learning to let go of the attachment of your last shot, worrying about the next shot, being Mm -hmm. fully present. And in business, it's the same. If you're constantly allowing that inner monologue to grind you down, if you're letting the opinions of others prevent you from playing freely, then chances are you'll never achieve your peak performance and then i think limitation in terms of your belief about what you're capable of must be another critical area to explore
1: let's just imagine for a second a, a fighter getting ready for a fight and let's imagine it's a big fight and i've i've had this example i'm not going to say who it is but where the, the fighter knows that if they win this that more than likely they're going to get signed by the ufc which is the goal it's where it's where all the fighters want to be it's the top promotion it's where you where you want to be if you're serious about the sport and knowing going into this fight and a smaller regional promotion that if I if I do the business here I'm I'm in all the years of work gets rewarded finally so that's a lot of weight to, to have on your shoulders heading into a fight if you look at it that way that could freeze someone that could cause someone to underperform under the weight of that pressure, where they they carry that in with them, and it's kind of like it's now or never. This is my chance. It, what if I don't do it, and all of this stuff? So that's all there. That's not helpful, as I would see it. What you want to do is is be able to separate yourself from that. So you have to accept it. It is real. So there's no point in burying your head in the sand and pretending it's not it's not there. It's real. You accept it, but then choosing to focus instead on what you can control. What what are the things that matter here? So your preparation, getting the best out of your preparation and on fight night, going in and performing to your best. And then the stuff will happen afterwards. You'll win the fight. Your hand will be raised afterwards. You'll you'll impress people. Uh, like as then people will be impressed by what you just did. That promotion will contact you and, and sign you and all that stuff will happen afterwards. But it all stems from your performance. So that's the part that you need to focus on. That's the part that's in your control. The rest so, of it is outcome-based stuff. If that's what your attention is on, that's what you focus is on, you're going to get away from delivering your best. So this is really about being fully present in the
0: moment and focus on what you can control now and let go or be dragged of the rest of it.
1: And it's been clear on what the objective is. So what it is you're asking yourself to do on that night is not get signed by the UFC. That's yeah. not asking yourself to do what you're asking yourself to do is go in and perform to your best so being really clear on what the objective is for this night there will be side effects and consequences to do in that and if you if you deliver then they will be positive things and they are what you want to happen but if you go in thinking i'm going in here to get signed you know you're, you're just putting too much on it you're putting you're getting away from what uh, you're not being clear on what it is you're asking yourself to do that's like going out on the golf course and
0: worrying about the next shot if you're not focused on this shot, you're going to end up in the
1: weeds. Or focus on the last shot. And yeah. the last shot, yeah, absolutely. Which, which might be more of a, a, a thing where you drive and you're way off in the rough somewhere. Have in- you been watching my game? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, golf is, is an incredible example where the top players can have a disastrous round. And, you know, nothing much has changed. Their swing is still right and all that stuff. But it's just the mental side of a, of a round is incredible. Yes, it's present, it being present, but it's, it's more than that. It's more than just being present. It's, it's being clear on what it is you're asking yourself to do. That's, it. That's something that people don't do very well, I would say.
0: I remember hearing a story about, I think it was Gary Player years ago, and he shot a magical first, uh, first nine. And the camera picked him up saying to his caddy, I'm good, but I'm not that good. And yeah. he managed to drop six shots on the, uh, the second, uh, second nine. Still one, but only by a couple of strokes. And I think far, far too often, those self-limiting beliefs and those, that inner dialogue is incredibly harmful. So what do you do in order to help people calm that voice? and allow the productive inner dialogue to begin.
1: Yeah, I mean, everyone is constantly talking to themselves. So you need to firstly acknowledge that, that there is that constant constant self-talk happening. But yeah, I mean, I guess the foundations of the work that I do is based on controllables and non-controllables. So being aware of what is controllable, what is outside your control. like The boring basic stuff that's controllable, sleep, food um, hydration training as in for athletes it's it's their job to train but for a regular person in business or whatever it's actually getting some fitness stuff in getting some exercise in it's what, you're, um, what you choose to allow to influence you as in people that you allow to influence you what you're like are you on social media and are you reading comments from strangers and allowing that to affect your mood or or not and another controllable for you is, is is your self-talk to a degree so being aware of that you can step in at any point if you don't like the way you're talking to yourself and and maybe change that but you don't want to have a battle with yourself this is this is the thing because that that's not going to work either what i like to start to to get the idea across to people is is for fighters or it applies for every every sport really but imagine a fighter in the middle of a fight and their corner man is shouting horrible abuse into them about how badly they're performing, how they they're not that good and they never were. They don't even belong at this level. They've been fooling themselves. You're really tired now, like so exhausted here. I wish this was over. Just let this end now. I don't even care if I win or lose. I just want it to be over. If your corner man was shouting that into you, they would be sacked and they nobody, no, no fighter's gonna hire that person again. But this is what we can do to ourselves all the time, that type of negative self-talk. So it's it's about kind of being aware of the way you talk to yourself. You know, being your own best cornerman is the way I put it. Not rah, rah, rah positive stuff, but realistic, good advice, sound advice that you would want your cornerman to give to you. You can give it to yourself. So I, that's important. I
0: see this a lot. It certainly in business I have found it where people speak to themselves in such a way that if they were a friend, you'd punch them on the nose. And you you have to be your own best friend. Life life is shitty and tough enough as it is. It doesn't need you to fuck with your head. Why would you choose to add another layer of competition um, in a world that's already
1: tough enough? Especially if it's not true. (laughs) Sometimes we do need to hear the thing that we need to hear might not be what we want to hear. Sometimes you need that little kick to get yourself, you know, woken up or get, get your attention back or whatever. Maybe you do need a hard talk to yourself, but it needs to be fair and accurate stuff. It needs to be relevant to what you're doing. Like focusing on how tired you feel in the middle of a fight is not helpful at all. And it's only going to have the effect of making you feel more anxious and then more tired. So Instead, focusing on your recovery is more helpful in that situation. Not looking to rest and try to survive. It's amazing in the middle of, like I, I, I compete in jiu-jitsu myself, and it's, a, and it's amazing in the middle of enrolling and in training inspiring. sparring. Like you, can, you can change, like you start off the round and then maybe you get taken down and the guy is on top and he passes to side control. So you feel it all of his weight on you. And you, you've already had several rounds of sparring in the, in the session, so you are you are definitely feeling tired. But it's amazing how you can allow the goal to drop, as in I'll just survive to the end of the round now. Get submitted, I'll just survive. Whereas at the start, you would never have seen that as a goal. You would want to you want to achieve more. So it's amazing how we can just allow the what we're asking ourselves to do to just drop and drop if we're not careful. Instead of what you should be doing is fighting from every position. At whatever position you're in right now, you should be fighting. you know what to do technically from that position, assuming that you've had adequate skills acquisition and you know uh, you you know you know enough if, if if you're a professional fighter, you do know what to do. you could tell if there was a like a multiple choice quiz of what do I do in this position, you would get the answer right. but and so you should be you should be focused on doing that stuff and then doing it, doing fighting from every possible position, not feeling like, sorry for yourself that you're in this position or changing the goal to be in survival now and and so on. So it's fascinating when you go into the specifics of, of competition in sports. Uh, And for me, watching sports is a different thing now than it used to ever be. Cause I can, I can look at it with that, with that mental aspect and kind of imagine what that athlete is going through and maybe even how they're talking to themselves in the moment. I'm not, I'm not a mind reader or anything like that, but you, 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 cannot, you can see trends and tendencies in fights and, and, and in other sports.
0: My daughter plays competitive football, and one question she wanted to ask you is, if you perform, you know, if you make a mistake and you find one of your teammates that just keeps ragging on you, criticizing you,
1: how, how do you handle that? it depends on who that teammate is in the leadership of the group it matters if that's like a captain and someone who leads by example and someone who does deliver and they're you know they're they're trying their best to get the best out of her that's one thing but if it's just someone who this is just a personality trait that they have that they're just that type what i would say is in the moment who cares what they're saying you know what I mean like if you've made a mistake you, you know yourself you've made a mistake and you want to correct it yourself so if you've just made a mistake you're not feeling great and then if you're allowing that person's advice or whatever you want to call it to make to if you're looking at it as a negative thing then you're even feeling worse now what you want to do is just step in and let go of the mistake it's gone it's over you obviously you don't want it to you don't want it to happen you didn't want it to happen you don't want, it to, happen. You don't want it to happen again But if you're dwelling on it and you're dwelling on the way the teammates talking to you, then you're not here wherever you are. You're not here where you need to be right now. So a lot of it is taking control of yourself and having a little word with yourself, giving yourself the advice you want to hear. So that teammate, you can't control what other people are going to say. When we talk about controllables, you cannot control what someone else is going to say. Even if you have a word with them and say, I don't appreciate it. Or you could talk to the coach or whatever. "Eh." It's not going to matter. They still might say it. So you don't get to control what others say. You do get to control how you react to it, though. And that, I think, is the key. If you take that
0: stuff to heart and you take it personally, you carry that baggage. And this is the whole concept of attachment. The Buddha said that attachment is the root to all misery. And if you're worried about other people's opinions, if you're worried about the outcome, certainly in sales, I think... People sell freely when they let go of the outcome. They're not attached to the outcome. They're focused on being fully present, fully in the moment, paying attention 100% to what the other person is saying, doing, not saying, not doing, and really being focused on doing an excellent job in the moment. Because again, if I draw a parallel to the sale, there are all these different things that lead up to having that meeting. In the meeting, there are different stages and elements of it. But if you're worried about the botch job you did in the opening uh, verbal contract, or you're thinking about your next question instead of listening to what the other person is saying, then you're not (coughs) present. You're missing the really important signals. And I think certainly when I was younger, I was always in a hurry to get to the bit where I could be great. So I could do a presentation. I could demonstrate my incredible wealth of knowledge. What I've learned as I've got older, wiser, and bolder is that I should spend less time on me. And my emphasis is on making sure that I'm fully present. I'm paying full attention to what's happening in front of me. And I'm listening all the way to the end. And then I pause. And I think patience is something that, Certainly as a coach I've learned is really important as a practitioner it's really important how important is patience in terms of sports psychology
1: you mean for the for the athlete themselves for the athlete themselves yeah yeah i mean it's it's important in a few different ways in terms of the that skills acquisition the training side of things there might be something in your game that you're You're not happy with, or you know needs improvement, or whatever. So it's about having the, I guess patience is one way of one part, one element of it of understanding that it's a process to get better. So you're not just gonna hear something and then you're better. You it's a requires work, it requires training, and it requires drilling or whatever it is that you put that thing into practice and willing to let the ego suffer being bad at something so knowing that i can go and do this thing that i'm good at or i can put myself in this bad position and focus on this thing that i know i need improvement so and then having the patience to go through that process of of uh, developing that skill and improving that skill and taking pride in the fact taking ownership of it that over time i will get better here then turning what was an area to improve into a positive thing is you know that's that's a beautiful thing it, that that, that can happen. And it just reinforces the desire to do that again with more stuff. So it's not, you're not just training the thing that you worked on, that skill you worked on. You're also training yourself to work on skills, if that makes sense. It does.
0: And again, there's a really interesting and important distinction between training and learning. Training is something that you do to someone else in my world. Whereas learning is something that you take personal ownership, personal responsibility for. And learning is only valuable if you can put it into practice and you have to have the patience to practice perfect practice. I can go around the golf course and keep hacking away at the ball, having a bad stance, messing my swing up, not lining up my breathing. And I just get better at being shit at the sport. and. I think people are so often in a hurry, especially when they're younger or they're early in business or where things are pretty tough. There's a natural impatience and impetuosity towards uh, trying to get um, the outcome to win. And But one of my favorite examples is the Beatles. Seven years stuck in a Hamburg cellar playing from 10 to 12 hours a day. They were really proficient by the end. And I remember watching film about them and uh, they were playing with 120 watt amp with 50,000 screaming kids. And they were still playing in perfect uh, synchrony because they had practiced and practiced and practiced. And I think one of the things that I see people who have talent but never reach their potential is they don't put the practice in. So what are your thoughts around that? there's a
1: difference between practice like what we call deliberate practice so you could be putting the hours in and i've seen it with fighters over the years where they're they're at, they're always in the gym they're always there but then if you ask them 3 months later how are you better now than you were 3 months ago they couldn't answer that question right they couldn't answer it off the top of their head and a lot of it is because they're not taking ownership of their of their improvements they're just showing up and doing the class and that's it the hours in That's fine. But are they better? Yeah, I'm sure they're better. But are they as better as they could be? No, definitely not. Taking ownership of your improvement, having that mindset of wanting to be improving and knowing that it's on me to make myself improve. So my coach is going to teach me stuff and my training partners are going to help. But I'm in charge of what I want to to work on. So I can can tell you in three months from now why I'm better than I was. I'm better at this specific scale and this specific scale because I've, concentrated and focused and deliberately practice those things. And uh, I can see technically why I'm more proficient now.
0: It's perfect practice that makes perfect.
1: You practice
0: with the deliberate intention of improving, not to go through the motions. You practice for incremental gain. And I think one of the problems that I see many people who get injured in sport and probably never meet their potential, but also, in life and in business is they're in a hurry. So they don't put the, uh, the, the time in that is required to turn a, a behavior into a skill, into a habit, into muscle memory, and then understand how to apply it in multiple contexts. How important is it that when you're training, when you're learning and getting better, that you spend time teaching? Because one of my favorite uh, proverbs or adages is teach once, learn twice. Does that help?
1: It seems to. I mean, I've, I've known cases of both, right? So I've seen fighters who used to coach some sessions for beginners or whatever, just to pay gym fees or, or you know, uh, that kind of a thing. And definitely it, it helps you to develop because you have to look at things a little differently. You have to break it down and get the real fundamentals. Because if you're going to teach someone else how to do it, you need to, you need to understand the fundamentals of, of this technique or whatever. So you get to look at things a little different and, and study things from a different perspective than maybe you would if you were just being coached by someone else. So that from that side, it definitely helps. You don't have to teach to have that mindset, though. I've seen, and I've worked with plenty of, of fighters who had that same approach without actually teaching any beginners or anyone else. They would, they would look at techniques in this way. They would try to break it down. They would study other fighters, do video analysis of other fighters, specific techniques they were doing and seeing the why of the, of that technique, how exactly this part works. And this part works but why what's, what's happening fundamentally here that that makes this successful. What are the counters to it that I am aware of so that I can counter their counter? So there's a lot to it. But if you have that mindset, then it's that mindset that's the key, not so much the teaching. Because I've seen others just go in and teach a class and they don't give a fuck, and they're just they're just there for the hour and, and going through the motions, and that's it. And they haven't really gained anything, and neither have their students. So when you talk about mindset, what are the different components of it? The mindset? Yeah. There's a lot to that question. I could I could spend a day talking about that, but I mean, for me, what matters in terms of performance in sports is where's your attention? Where is your focus? Because the idea that you have you you don't you, you're not focused is not true. You're always focused. it's just a matter of what you're focused on. So knowing where your attention is, being aware of where your attention and your focus and your concentration is is it one, the task at hand? or has it wandered off get, and can you get it back? So that's important in terms of confidence. That's obviously important, but we need to know where confidence comes from because too often people will replicate what they're seeing on the outside from someone they perceive as confident. So like top, top athletes, some guy coming through was looking at the top athletes and, they, and, and like say Michael Jordan back in the day, as the top athlete on the planet at that time, just because you hang your tongue out when you're dribbling and and shooting doesn't that's not that's not what is going to make you better or or, or your body language like having chest out shoulders back just because you saw others doing that, that doesn't doesn't mean anything. It's just like you're copying the things that that you can see without knowing what's gone into making that happen. So, knowing where confidence comes from, it has to come from work. It has to come from you putting in the work and putting in the preparation. And then knowing that you've prepared, knowing that you've not cut corners, you've really put the work in, you earn the confidence then you earn the trust in yourself. That's what confidence really is, is the, I have a task at hand here. Do I believe I can do it? Yes or no. Do I trust myself to achieve this? Yes or no. And so if you're, if you're confident, then you believe that I can get this done, but that has to be based on work. If you haven't prepared and then you head into a fight. You can do all the stuff you want, but if you haven't prepared, you know deep down you're you're not really feeling confident. So it's not about what you what you say or how you look. It's about what what you're doing behind the scenes. And I think that's
0: really profound. You have to earn the confidence.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, I, that's a big I, thing because I've seen it with athletes so much where they're they're they've been impressed by someone in their sport, and they. They start to mimic them almost, but not knowing what has gone in behind the scenes to create that. They're almost copying the thinking that being an extrovert and dressing a certain way or body language a certain way, and that's it, I'm confident. That's That's a veneer.
0: It's just packaging. What I'm really interested in here, because you've just sparked a thought, it strikes me that there is a certain kind of intelligence that's required to master a sport, whichever the discipline. And
1: how would you describe that intelligence? I mean, it's difficult to categorize it because there's, there's a lot of different personality types that have been successful in, in sports. Like I know a lot of athletes and fighters who would not do well in an iq test or whatever but their emotional intelligence is really high and they have a self-awareness that's really high i think having 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 those things is is really important and understand like i mean it's all become cliche the growth mindset and the importance of having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset but what that really is is just this awareness self-awareness that i am this now but that's not who i am i can be i can be better if i if i do xyz then i me 3 months from now is going to be better at this thing it's the awareness to know that it's bigger than just i if i do this training i get better it's the it's the knowledge that we can constantly change and and adapt and improve it's
0: really interesting because i read an article today on what makes really successful Leaders And uh, the the managing partner for Russell Reynolds, which is a very large, successful headhunting firm, Clark Murphy, talks about LQ, which is a person's willingness and ability to adapt to change and to accept the fact that something has occurred, then to adapt to that current situation. And actually, that's what Darwin was talking about in terms of survival of the fittest. It wasn't the brawniest. It was the one that could survive best in the current conditions. And I'm seeing increasingly in the global economy as things change, that introverts are really starting to have their day. Software uh, developers and engineers are the masters of the universe nowadays. And I think there are so many different types of intelligence, IQ being just one of them, One that I see increasingly on the rise is PQ, partnering quotient, the ability to work collaboratively and cooperatively with others. Now, I suspect there must be quite a difference between those who have to go out and perform individually versus those who have to perform in a team. I know you do a lot with MMA, but you also do a lot with football and rugby. So I'm curious, again, in terms of team dynamics, the work that you do as a sports psychologist. Talk to me about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, within a team, I've worked with individuals that make up the team. Because MMA as well, I mean, it's an individual sport. You're the only one making the walk on fight night and you're in there on your own kind of. But you've got a team behind you. You can't prepare on your own. You have a team. There's definitely a team atmosphere, a team culture in terms of training and prep but specifically for team sports I've worked with individuals within those team sports and uh, yeah it's, it is different for sure than than an individual athlete in terms of you could have your best ever game and you still lose because goalkeepers messed one up at the end or whatever it is so there's definitely like shared responsibility but it, it's important as as an individual in a team to know what your role is in the team, how you fit in that team, how you can shape the culture of that team. And it's, it's really important as like a coach to know who your leaders are in the team. What's called the, the kind of the architects of the the culture in the team and knowing who those people are, who kind of can like Roy Keane, Alex Ferguson, like he's been talked at length about who he was the, the coach on the field, he was like an extension of the of the coach, and there's many other examples of that over the years. So it's about the coach's job to know who those people are, who who matter in the dressing room, who people will get behind, so that you make sure those people are on board, and that you're on the same page with with them, so that the there's a consistent message going down to to the whole squad, and then role clarity within that team is important. So that every individual knows what their what their job is, um, so that they can really focus on their part, knowing that their part is, in addition to the others, makes the, the you know makes the full thing.
0: One area that I see being massively deficient in business is managers spending their time on supervisory activity instead of on coaching. In my world. Managers have five functions. Hire the best people. Recruit the best. Get the best out of them. And that should constitute 50 to 70% of your work on a day-to-day basis. Make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. Help them to clear roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from senior leadership and uh, to manage inclusively. So my question is this how pivotal how critical is the role of the coach
1: absolutely critical i've as a player been involved in teams that were you know had had really good coaches and 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 the opposite and it's amazing how the difference was reflected in terms of results and a lot, a lot of it is the culture the coach not exclusively but definitely major role in shaping the culture of, of the team and needs to be aware of that at all times and needs to have an idea of what culture they actually want and then how, how are they shaping that culture and role clarity and and all that kind of thing as well and and in terms of like the cohesion what, what you want is the full group feeling like they're part of it and they care about what happens there's nothing worse than a team where some members of the team are almost rooting against you yeah because they're not happy with some decisions that have been made, maybe some personal vendettas or whatever, and they're almost rooting against their own team, which is like we've seen it in sports over the years, but it's it's an awful thing when that's when that's happening what so what you want is as a coach as a leader to you know stamp that stuff out obviously ideally, it doesn't happen in the first place, but it it kind of inevitable that it will so you you stamp that stuff out when it starts to creep in um mm-hmm. So you keep the the culture and the and the atmosphere and the environment positive and everyone is feeling like they're part of it even the people who are not having as much playing time or whatever as others that they still feel like they have an important role to play here that's again that's important for a coach to to be aware of how much that can impact and and how that spreads like it, it's like a it's like a fungus that can spread. Through a team, if you're not careful, if you're not aware of it and you don't stamp it out. This is really interesting
0: because I draw a parallel here with a technology company called Splunk, fabulous name. And when Palomine, Tom Shodorff, took over sales, he had two absolute superstar salespeople, but they wouldn't play by the rules. And one of his earliest decisions was removing them. And the positive impact on morale was immediate. And what that told everybody was that we have a way of doing things around here. And they went from 42 million to 1.2 billion in five years. And you can't do that with individuals who are divisive, creating that kind of fracture. And in organisations you see it all the time where there is interdepartmental friction marketing conflicted with sales sales with operations mm-hmm. finance with everybody so again i think one of the really important things here is to find a common purpose and to have everybody batting towards the same objective so again if you are coaching the lead the leaders not just the coach the captain the manager and so on. What hard questions would you be asking them right from the outset if you saw a fractured
1: organization? I've had this. You want to ask, you want to ask the questions and and almost know the answers. I, I know the answers would be, but you want to ask the questions around like, how would we define ourselves as a team? Or, or how would you guys define yourselves as a team? Who are you? What What kind of, what kind of characteristics, what kind of behaviors and what kind of culture could would you say this is and oftentimes they they don't know what that they don't know how to answer it they don't know you know which is an answer in itself absolutely <laughs> so you, what you want is them to have a clear answer to that so that they know what the culture they want to have at least is or what the what the atmosphere they want to have is what the beliefs the the values that 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 team has and then if it's not, what you want, then there's ways to, to adapt and 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 make changes. But you first need to have a vision of what it is you actually want it to be. That's often lacking.
0: I think there's something really important there around values as well. I had a conversation with uh, a pal of mine, Aaron Schmuckler, and he said that they're not real values unless you're willing to lose something for them. And I think it's really important to understand that values aren't something that you just pay lip service to. They're the standards by which you live. You execute those values even when no one is looking. Mm. And I think far, far too often, people pay lip service to values. And the net result of that is that you end up with really disappointing experience for all involved. And I suspect in sport, the customers are the fans. And if there isn't a rock solid culture, and they aren't working towards common purpose, then they trade their pay packet. So they're they're more interested in their millions a week than they are in going out and producing a fabulous performance. And that I see a lot in uh, the fast growth technology industry as well, where people have compromised their values, they've forgotten that the customer is the reason we exist. And as a result, they sacrifice the customer for their commission check. They sacrifice the customer for growth in revenues and evaluation of the business. So there are so many parallels here. If we were to look at the really critical components of having a strong, sustainable psychology as an athlete, what would you say are the really crucial
1: elements that are non-negotiable? So definitely the controllables and the non-controllables is one. Not just being aware of them, but living your life that way, that you 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 really do focus your attention and your efforts to the controllables, while being aware of the non-controllable things, which a lot of them are outcome-based, and no matter how much you want those things to go your way, they're there is by definition a non-controllable element to them. So let them be, sit, let them sit there, let them float around and instead drive your attention to where it, it. you can make a difference, which is on your controllables and do them as best you can. That's for sure a big thing. Clarity. Like I, I've already mentioned about well, clarity of what it is you're asking yourself to do is huge. Knowing where your confidence comes from is huge. The work, there's no shortcuts. People often think sports psychology itself is a shortcut. And when they when they see in its true form that it's just maybe a better way of working or or a more efficient way, but you still have to put the work in. You're not going to get a shortcut here. There's no magic trick to it. Some people get turned off by that, but that's that's for the best, because it was never going to work anyways if you're looking for a quick fix. So knowing where you're knowing where your confidence comes from and it has to come from the work. Um, and then you can't plan for everything. Um, so like. For example, I've had fighters who previously would have had like a good performance, a good win. And so they tried to replicate that next time around by wearing the same socks. I am like it's an extreme example, but getting to the venue at the same time and their warm up at the same time, eating the same food that morning, having the same music as their walkout song, saying the same thing to themselves as they as they got into the cage. none of that stuff that's just almost superstition um it's not that's not real and 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 if you try to routine yourself to excellence it's not going to work cuz something is going to come up that's going to to throw your routine off you know there's going to be some like uh i've had it where uh, you know two brothers fight on the same card and the younger brother loses his fight gets knocked out and so and and then the older guy's up next and um, you know, that's, that's a uh, hard to take and it throws you off a little bit. So stuff like that can happen in the buildup or the timings are wrong from the promoter and you're up, you're up half an hour earlier than you thought. So your warm up is kind of thrown out a little bit and you know, all these kind of things will happen on and regularly do happen. And you just, you have to roll with it a little bit. You So you can't be, it's a good idea to have a plan of how you want to prepare, but you, you can't be, a slave to that. You can't be religious with it where I have to do this. If I do this, this, and this, then I will perform. It's it's a choice you're making to do those things, but you don't need to do them in order to get the performance. You're still in control of the performance. And that's the other thing, then is, and this is a big thing, it doesn't really matter what you've done before. It doesn't matter how well you've played in the last six matches or whatever. You have to go and perform today. You have to make it happen every time. Every single game, every single fight is its own unique event that you have to uniquely get yourself mentally prepared for and in the right frame of mind. No one's going to do it for you. You can't depend on some coach to say the right thing in the dressing room just before because they might not say it. So you have to get, you're, you're in charge of getting yourself there and you have to do that every single time. Doesn't matter if you've done it. It's never automatic. It's never going to be automatic. So on that note, for those of you who are
0: in sales, fucking listen to this, okay? You prepare for every sale you plan every sale from scratch you rehearse as if it's the first time you've done it and you practice until you've got the different elements right have people play positive neutral negative prospect have them play uh, closed mouth have them play uh, spill their guts have a red team that picks the sale apart You have a duty and responsibility to the customer, to your team, to your company, and to yourself to go in prepared. It's an act of gross negligence and gross misconduct to treat any sale as if it doesn't matter. The company has spent a small fortune and hundreds of man hours getting to the point where you are in front of that customer. How dare you turn up and just wing it? and be half assed about it. The customer deserves more respect and you deserve to have more self-respect. So I'm going to get off my soapbox for a moment. David, what are you struggling with at the moment? What are
1: you wrestling with? The big thing for me, it's always been there to some degree, was being too emotionally attached to the outcome of the, of the fighters, like the, of the fight. Yeah. Uh, I would talk about performance-based performance based focus for them, but then for myself, if they didn't perform, I would be distraught. might be too big of a word, but in some cases, maybe it's not big enough of a word. So I have, I've had to get better at that, but then I've had some real tough cases with, when a fighter has had to go through that unexpected end of everything they've been working towards, that's really tough to deal with for them, obviously, but tough for me too. And seeing fighters having... You know, had to retire because of not just injury, but sometimes brain injury or risk of brain injury, where they've, they've shun, something has shown up in a scan. And if they don't stop, they're at risk of some serious damage. So they're not damaged so much as they're at high risk. That's scary. So that kind of thing, you know, people don't, don't consider it when they're fans of a sport. They don't consider the personal, emotional stories that go in behind those and, and what can, you know, what can happen. And being, Directly involved in some of that stuff is, it's, I, I definitely struggle with it.
0: Do you prepare them post sports career as well?
1: Yeah, have to. Have to. It's a big thing where have to help. Like everyone's career is going to end and it's going to end when you're young. Even a top athlete, it's still, they're still a young person when they're finished. And they might be an old athlete, but they're a young person. So they've got a lot ahead of them. So it's important to get excited about what's coming next, set new challenges thinking about what you would like to get into when you're finished while you're doing it is a good idea so that you can you can start getting excited about things and and, and uh, it you know makes the transition easier when you've got real challenges ahead.
0: Interestingly enough, I know a sales organization that actively recruits ex- rugby players because they make great salespeople. So uh, again, if uh, you have any, please do pass them my way. I'd love to talk to them. Okay, this has been really fascinating. Thank you. Tell me, you've got a golden ticket. You can go back and advise the idiot David, age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you give him, uh, despite the fact he knew he was
1: immortal and knew everything at the time? Well, that's always an interesting question because it's not like 23-year-old me didn't get good advice from people. <laughs> you know? So why would I believe some old looking guy more than what I got back then? So I think a lot of it is about, you have to go through certain experiences, you know, you do have to go through certain experiences when you're younger to arrive at a point of whether that's modesty or, or whatever it is that you're able to humility, humility. Yeah. Just to reflect and like make some changes. So doesn't, it almost doesn't matter sometimes what advice you're getting if you're not in a position to receive that advice and do something with it because um, you kind of have to go through a certain experience to to feel like that
0: it sounds like uh, you might need to go so let's uh, wrap up tell me this if there was one piece of content a book a video or an audio
1: that you would recommend there's, yeah there's one I, I there's one i read recently it's it's, a, it's like a like a handbook almost it's it's such a short book i don't remember the name of the author but it's called the one thing and that's pretty interesting stuff because it's it's just dispelling the myth of multitasking because multitasking is not a real thing you it's doing it. many things badly yeah like just that old proverb of chase two rabbits you catch none it's called the one thing by it's gary ca- keller okay yeah 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 but yeah that's uh, that's one i would recommend Excellent. And uh, final question: How can people get hold of you? I don't know. I mean, uh, there's there's a few different ways. People, if they're serious, tend to find me. I put it like that. So there's been multiple people over the years that uh, they get in touch, but very few who actually follow through on doing the work for real. For real, I'm talking about. So
0: excellent. These, so on that note, David Mullins, thank you.
1: Cheers, Marcus. It's been a, it's been fun.
0: Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. Please do get in touch. My email address is marcus at lastcom or direct message me on LinkedIn. I'm much easier to find than David. So in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.